your Bible reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1 through to chapter 12 verse 10. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness. Yes, please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the snake's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Archaea will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day, a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. 
I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I will go into visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Thanks, Caro. Morning, folks. Great to have you along. Special welcome to you if you're new or visiting. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going to hang out in that section of 2 Corinthians. This is where I'd normally say to you, if you don't have a Bible, go and grab one from the back and put your name in it. We've run out of Bibles. That's a good problem to have. All right. There's some more on order. Uh, hopefully, you're able to look on with the person next to you for now, because we are going to hang out in that space, and it's a reasonably big space. So um, how about we pray and we'll dive straight in. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask, like, we every, like every week, that by your Spirit and through your Word, that you would correct us and comfort us and challenge us as necessary, that we might be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ, both for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there's many things that you can uh, work out, uh, many things of interest to learn, I find, when you're walking through the supermarket. You ever done? I mean, I'm not talking about a weirdo sort of just walking through the supermarket. I mean, when I'm shopping, all right, I'm not just walking through there for kicks and giggles, you know. That's... But there's lots of things you can notice. Uh, it's a real insight into society, if you like. And one of the things I've noticed recently is that we as uh, consumers love a good substitute. We're ripe, it seems, to hear new ideas, and when we're convinced it fits us better, we're happy to swap stuff out. Let me give you some examples. Here's one. Ever worried about having too much sugar in your diet? Then try an alternative. Here, I'll give you some ideas. Uh, artificial sweeteners. Try honey, for example. Stevia. Equal. Splendid. I could go on. Monk fruit sugar. Who knows what that is? You can get it. Or maybe you're concerned about having too much fat in your diet, and butter may be the culprit. Well, trial any of these alternatives. I mean, goodness gracious me, I'm not sure that they all work in the same way, in the same fashion for baking. But here's some alternatives. 
Coconut oil, nut butter, banana, Greek yogurt, pumpkin, applesauce. Wow, I didn't think of that. Or perhaps good old cow's milk has passed its use-by date for your tender tummy. Actually, I'm in this cup. I'm in this category. Milk doesn't agree with me anymore, and I used to be a potty calf. Man, I would drink 10, 12 liters a week, no doubt. But I can't do it anymore. Well, fear not. Though I'm personally can't find the teats on any of these alternative products. Apparently, you can get milk from some of these. Now, I'm not down on the principle of substituting things in your diet when you run into an issue or find a better option. In fact, praise God, we live in a place and a time where there is research happening on these sort of areas and therefore these are widely available alternatives to try. Praise God, that's great. But I want us to be careful in applying the principle of substitution across the board. Right? In, in some arenas of life, your motto should be, accept no substitutes. Theology or knowledge of God is one of these. Not all beliefs about God are equal. Not all of them are splendid either. See what I did there? Not all beliefs about God are true. Not all beliefs about God are good for you. In fact, this is where we begin chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. Accept no substitute. It's the first heading in your outline if you're following on, taking notes. Have a look there. But basically what's going on is Paul is worried that the Corinthians have inappropriately substituted him out for the super apostles. First mentioned explicitly in verse 5, they're referred to throughout the letter in its entirety. Paul is worried that the Corinthians have inappropriately substituted him out for the super apostles and have replaced his teaching with theirs. Where do we see it in the text? We'll have a look at chapter 11, verse 4. He says it there. For if someone comes to you, speaking to the Corinthians, and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Do you hear that? There's another Jesus being preached in Corinth. There's a different spirit being received and a different gospel being accepted. Now, is this a problem? Yes, it's a problem. It's a huge problem. In fact, look at verses 2 and 3 again. He says, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your mind may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Is this a problem? This is a huge problem. Paul is jealous for the Corinthians, but not in a pride-filled personal jealousy, as if Paul doesn't like sharing his influence or is worried about losing his market share. No, it's a godly jealousy. Like a Husbands write jealousy for his wife's affection. Do you know this? I have no intention of sharing my wife's affection with any other man. That is a good thing. This is Paul's jealousy for the Corinthians. It's a right jealousy for their affection so they would remain pure and untainted in their devotion, not to him, but to Christ. And the influence of these super apostles, so-called, is having a huge and detrimental effect on them. How detrimental? Did you notice something there? Did you notice an odd reference to something way back in the Bible there? Eve in the garden, verse 3. Detrimental on that scale. 
In fact, just as Eve was deceived by the serpent in Genesis 3 with a half-truth, also known as a lie, so too these super-apostles have deceived the Corinthians and are leading them away from Paul and by extension then, leading them away from the real Jesus, the Holy Spirit, away from grounding in the authentic gospel and therefore leading them away from the only basis for salvation and peace with God. And unlike exchanging foodstuffs in your diet, swapping out for another Jesus or receiving a different spirit or accepting a different gospel has eternal consequences, folks. In fact, very similar to the serpent's deception of Eve and his seduction. Just have a look at Genesis 3. You can sort of map onto Genesis 3 the same sort of idea. This teaching of the super apostles may have sounded good. They're still appealing to Christ. It may have been pleasing to the eye. They looked more impressive than Paul. And it may have appeared desirous for gaining new wisdom. In fact, they seem to promise much more than Paul promised. The problem being it's a deception. It's a deception that will lead to the same end. Sin, enmity with God, death, judgment. And so Paul's message for the Corinthians, his message for us is don't swallow that. Accept no substitutes. And why I say not just for the Corinthians, but for us too, because it's equally important for us to hear and apply today, isn't it? See, Paul's concern in verse 4 has not changed. Still today, you don't have to go far or look far to find another Jesus being preached or a different spirit being received or a different gospel being accepted. And equally alarmingly, there are still people like the Corinthians who put up with it, who accept it easily enough. People who, whether arrogantly or ignorantly, get deceived by this tripe and that's what it is. But I want to put a bit of a disclaimer in here straight away for us. It's important to note here that what Paul is speaking about here goes beyond personal preferences over music styles at church or your building shape or which Bible translation you use to put a bit of a modern spin on it. No, no, Paul here is talking about things and he is convinced that these people, the super apostles, are actually false teachers, leading people away from Jesus and therefore leading people to hell. They're doing the work of the devil, whether ignorantly or arrogantly. Did you see this in the text? Have a look at it again, chapter 11, verses 13 and 15. Look how he calls them out. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masqueraders, uh, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Do you hear how significant this is and how serious the charge that Paul is leveling here? It's huge. And it ought make you ask the question how do I make sure I'm not falling into the same trap as the Corinthians? How do I make sure that I'm neither being deceived or deceiving others on matters of faith? potentially, even inadvertently, siding with false apostles who are doing the devil's work. That is a serious question to ask, folks. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever considered that? You should. Don't be afraid to ask the question. 
It's not a trap you should want to fall into. But if you've got your eyes open and God's Spirit guiding you by His Word, it's not a trap that you need to fear fall. Uh, sorry, fear falling into by accident. I want you to hear that. If you have got your eyes open, that means you have got God's Spirit guiding you by His Word. Very important couplet. I'll explain that more because there is a different spirit at, at work in Corinth. God's Spirit, by His Word, this is not, you need not fear falling into this trap accidentally. And what I mean is there are two, I want to say, equal and opposite problems that Christians often make when they seek to apply this part of God's Word about the warnings with false teachers. Here are the two equal opposite faults. Number one, finding fault everywhere. Uh, That is, everyone who disagrees with me on a theological issue must be a false teacher and a consort of the devil. And because I don't find anyone who agrees with me 100% on every issue, everyone's a false teacher. You're all heretics. Finding fault everywhere. The second equal opposite error is finding fault nowhere. Where practically speaking, you treat the warnings of God's word about false teachers as an empty category. Yeah, there's a heading there and no one's in it. And you blindly or cheerfully or willfully accept any and every theological opinion as long as the person spouting it claims they're a Christian or uses Jesus' name at appropriate times or even quotes the Bible in part. Do you see two equal and opposite errors here? Finding fault or false teachers everywhere or nowhere. When the truth is there are false teachers out there But as I said, we need not fear either falling victim to them or fear calling them out for their falsehood if we keep in step with God's Spirit by sticking close to His Word and letting it be the measure and the standard by which we accept or denounce any teaching. Let me lighten the mood a little bit. It's kind of like a fish mat. Okay, I didn't catch that. It's the official measure that it gives though. There is a metre-long flathead. My biggest is only 97 centimetres. Oh, how did that get in there? Oh, what? How embarrassing. Humble brag. Remember last week? Pretty good fish though, don't you? Anyway, back to the fish mat. It's like a fish mat. The Bible is our objective measure for evaluating teaching, theology, any opinion about God, about Jesus, about the gospel, about the spirit, whatever. And anything that doesn't measure up, we toss back. In fact, I want to get a bit more practical here and and work a few examples through with you. How do we measure or weigh teaching about Jesus to ensure it's not another Jesus being preached, as Paul says is happening in Corinth? Well, you need to know what God's Word says about Jesus. You need to be aware of the characteristics of Christ that are central to the biblical witness as the key for any claim. They're like the marks on the fish map. These are the first-order issues. In fact, if you're taking notes, this is the second heading I'm up to now. These are the first order issues. And if a claim doesn't measure up, we toss it back as false. So let me get a little bit more practical again. For example, things like Jesus' full divinity as God in the flesh. His authority, therefore, over creation, over sickness, over spirits, over forgiveness of sins. His substitutionary death as payment for the sins committed by his people. 
his physical, bodily resurrection and ascension and the promise of his coming again in judgment at the end of the world to gather up his people and punish the unrepentant. These are core claims central to the biblical witness. They are first order issues. This is the real Jesus, folks. Now there's much more to him, obviously, but I point out these uh, specifically because there are those who claim membership to Christ, maybe even take the title of Christian, who profess and teach to tr- uh, t- sorry teach the truth, profess to teach the truth in direct opposition to those statements. There are people who will teach things like Jesus was just a prophet or just just a man, a really good man, a really excellent prophet, but just a prophet, just a man. Or there are those who teach that Jesus' death was purely exemplary. Love like this, lay your life down for another. And deny that his death had anything to do with the absorbing the wrath of God for sin. Or that his resurrection was maybe just purely spiritual or metaphorical. And though they may agree that he is coming back, it's not to judge. In fact, Some would suggest he's already come back. Friends, there are people who teach these things. But those who teach anything that is contrary to the consistent biblical witness and who refuse correction by the same witness are teaching another Jesus and are therefore false apostles, deceitful workers, masqueraders of light, no matter how broad their smile is, no matter how charming their manner, no matter how impressive their exterior or sincere their appeal. Do you hear that? It's important again. But exactly what was Jesus's the tone of his skin color? Or how long was his hair or short was his hair or precisely on what day of the year was he born according to our calendar? Do you know what? The Bible speaks nothing of these. It does not make these questions clear. They are second order issues at best. They are disputable matters. We can disagree on those and still be honoring the same Lord. There's a big difference. And the same is true for the teaching of the Holy Spirit. The teaching of the Holy Spirit from God's word, as the comforter, as the advocate, as the revealer of the truth through God's word, as he who convicts people of sin and brings them to repentance, the spirit as the prompt and the undergird of obedience and faith, the spirit who gifts variously as he determines for the good of the church, not individuals, for the glory of God, not the glory of individuals, This is core biblical witness. This is first order issues. Anyone who teaches in contrary to these, in contrary to scripture, things like speaking in tongues is the mark of the Holy Spirit, or that if you are a genuine faith-filled Christian, you will live happy, healthy, wealthy lives, or the spirit who tells you or condones specific sins in your life as unimportant, or the spirit who comes and causes you to lose control, whether it be ecstatic speech or uncontrolled dancing, they are appealing to a different spirit. Anyone who teaches as such and refuses to be corrected by the scripture, the scripture is written by the spirit, mind you, 
no matter how ecstatic the experience, no matter how impressive the miracle, no matter how wise or winsome the suggestion, they are false teachers, deceitful workers, masqueraders of light. And the same is true of the gospel itself. The gospel, in a nutshell, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in God's word alone, by his spirit alone, for God's glory alone. Core biblical witness, first order issues. And anyone who would teach in contradiction of this and refuses to be corrected by scripture, false teacher, do you see where I'm going with this? Deceitful worker, masquerader of light, no matter how famous they are, no matter how successful they are, no matter how long the tradition of their teaching extends back into antiquity, no matter how loving or inclusive it seems to be to modern sensibilities. But the precise nature or or the precise practice rather of baptism or beliefs about the how of creation The Bible is very clear on the who and the why, but the how, what would you have seen had you been there with a camera? Or how the end of the world will come? God's word has not made this clearly apparent. It is a second order issue. We can disagree and still maintain unity in the same God, in the same Christ, in the same gospel. Are you tracking with this, folks? So important to get this right. Necessary to think this through, to be able to sort out first order issues from second order issues, to be able to hold up any claim to the authority of Scripture. Because there are issues we can disagree on and maintain biblical unity, and there are issues where God's word has drawn clear lines. Can you do that? Will you do that? Don't leave it unread. Don't leave your sword sheathed. Get it out and wield it lovingly. In fact, nice little promo. Bible study start this week. This is a good opportunity. You come to church together with your family to hear God's word, to sit underneath it, to be corrected and challenged and changed by it corporately. And we do that weekly in small groups to have that more, you know, the engine room of the really robust discussion of maturity and discipleship and striving for obedience to Christ. Don't leave that unattended. I want to change gears suddenly. Here we go. I want to link back to a little bit of last week. That basis for boasting we looked at last week. And this week, there is a link between the discerning of false teachers. In fact, part of Paul's test for false teachers has a direct link with this basis for boasting. Last week, if you were here, you remembered that we looked at the world standard for the basis for boasting. And it was this idea of power and wisdom and strength and riches, the worldly standards of impressiveness. Paul says, that's rubbish. This week, I want us to focus on something else that Paul mentions here. It's what I want to call faux Christian boasting. In fact, it's another evidence of false teaching. It is that which looks and sounds godly, but is hollow. It's what I like to call genuine imitation leather. It's Christianized boasting, not Christian boasting. Do you know the difference? You see, Paul in Corinth, that he, the Corinth are not just seduced by the worldly standards of impressiveness, but because of this, they're particular suckers for this type of Christianized boasting. Have a look with me in the text of some examples of this Christianized boasting of the super apostles, the false teachers. Where do they go first? Have a look at verse 22. In fact, Paul does this little bit of a mock boast off. And he sort of matches them stride for stride. 
And he acknowledges that he's out of his mind to do this because the basis of where they land their boasting is nuts. In fact, it starts, even earlier than I made in my notes, it starts there in verse 6. I may indeed be an untrained speaker, assuming that these guys are trained speakers. That's part of the boast, isn't it? Or that they charge big money for their preaching. In verse 7, Paul says, was I, was I doing your disservice when I robbed other churches to preach to you? But it's not just that, they boast in their heritage. In fact, have a look at verse 22. He says, are they, he- are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. This is, this is classic this is classic sort of move from false teachers. It's where most of them start. They start with their pedigree as though this ought make you accept everything they say next as gospel. This is a Jewish heritage. We can fall victim to a similar thing, a Christian heritage. Oh, my grandfather was a Presbyterian minister. My mum and dad, have, I've always grown up in a Christian household. I actually met a girl once who was the daughter of a bishop. She was working as a chaplain. She told me once, yeah, I'm kind of like Christian royalty. You see the problem with that? Starting with your pedigree as a basis for what you say next, as though that's what makes it authority, is a problem. Paul says, I can do it. The next thing is, it's not just your heritage, it's that you are servants of Christ. In fact, have a look at it there. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this, says Paul in verse 23. And then often it is filled then with the exploits or the the details of the exploits. You'll notice this if you ever come across some of these ministries, the miracles, the testimonies of others, the success or the size of their particular ministries. Notice that Paul mockingly matches these categories boast for boast. He talks about being a servant of Christ. But his exploits are about his hardships and the emotional emotional pressure and concern that he suffers i.e. he talks about the things that are not very impressive boasts. Look at, I mean, just scan verses 23 to 26. He talks about his exploits in the service of Christ, flogged, near death, marooned, in constant danger. It's not very impressive. He will talk about his hardships in verse 27, where he is crippled by lack, be it food, be it sleep, be it clothes. He talks about his servanthood of Christ in terms of the emotional pressure in verses 28, 29. He's on the brink of burning out. Why does Paul use these unimpressive boasts in his mock boast-off? Precisely because they're not impressive. Precisely because they actually demonstrate his weakness. In fact, he says this explicitly in chapter 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. How countercultural is that, both then and now? In fact, that little bit in verses 32 to 33 about this getting a, a going and lowering down the wall in a basket, I heard it suggested Paul was referencing the occasion that he escaped out of the city of Damascus being lowered down in the basket. And this is meant to further demonstrate and make a parody of his weakness because a sign of super impressiveness in Roman culture was the award given to the soldier who was the first to breach the walls of a city, the first to go over the top of that city. That soldier who showed the most bravery and the most courage by being the first to climb over the hostile walls of a city, they get the gong. And here Paul boasts in a coward's retreat. Lowered down by a basket. How unimpressive is that? 
And that's the point. Because he has nothing to boast about in and of himself. See, folks, he is the key between Christian boasting and Christianized boasting. We saw it again last week. Christianized boasting, me at the center. Christian boasting, Christ at the center. And even when Paul has got something genuinely impressive to boast about, about super spiritual experiences that he had, he refuses to do it. Now, I'm not sure if you, if you picked this up. In fact, have a look. Scan verses 1 to 7 of chapter 12. I'll sort of give you a summary. This is what's going on here. As Paul speaks about a man, nameless, verse 2, who was caught up into the highest heaven, the third heaven, and told inexpressible things, verse 4. This kind of man is the man who could post genuinely of spiritual things, says Paul in verse 5, and yet he won't do it even though he's the man. In fact, he won't do it because he's that man, verse 6 and 7. And more than that, God won't allow him to boast in it either. And so we read there in verse 7 of chapter 12, in order to keep Paul from growing conceited, God gave him something. In fact, look at it there in verse 7. Look at the language that Paul uses to describe this gift of God. A thorn in my flesh? A messenger of Satan to torment me? Now, lots of ink has been spilt arguing over what this thorn in the flesh was referring to. Was it a bodily um, malady, a disease or a chronic condition, perhaps gout or ulcers or hemorrhoids? Perish the thought. Or was it a mental illness like depression or anxiety? Was it a physical disability, a dicky knee, a clicky hip, a pinched nerve? The truth is we don't know. What we do know from the text is that it was God-given and unpleasant So unpleasant that we read in 12 verse 8 that he says, he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. In other words, Paul did not enjoy this thorn, whatever it was. But ultimately, Paul recognized that though it was unpleasant, it was God-given. And it was for his good. Because it kept him grounded. Because it kept him aware of his daily dependence on God. Because it kept him humble so that he can boast of God's grace and goodness to him and through him not boast as though he was God's gift himself in fact this is essentially how Paul relates God's response to his prayer to remove that God-given thorn have a look at 12 verse 9 and 10 he says but he said to me God my God said to him my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Friends, my question to all of us here as we wrap up this section of God's word is, do you know Paul's experience personally? I'm not talking about the shipwrecks or the floggings or the stony, not beating with rods. I hope no one's had that. (laughs) But the reality of your weakness, the truth of your inability, if we're honest, sometimes our unwillingness to change areas of your life that you know need addressing. Are you broken by your sin, devastated by your proclivity to go back there, or your tendency to minimize or deny that it even happened? Friends, are you still attempting to keep obedience to God's word at arm's length because you just don't like what it says 
or you don't understand what it says and in truth don't want to understand what it says or because you're convinced you know better or maybe the thought of coming into obedience just seems too difficult, too costly, too scary. Friends, have you embraced the reality of your weakness because it's real? Not so that you descend into self-loathing or depression or anxiety or fear, but so that you find and rest and trust and boast in God's strength, secured by Christ and administered by His Spirit. The Psalms. And Proverbs, Psalms 111 verse 10 and Proverbs 9 verse 10 both explicitly state this. And the rest of the scripture confirms it in practice and by example. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think this is very much related to that embracing your weakness that you might rely on God's strength. Do you fear God rightly? Are you seeking in his word to put your trust Have you got there yet? Everyone needs to, and counterintuitively, can I say, it is both the safest place to be and the only basis for boasting. My weakness and God's strength. Let's pray as we finish, folks. And as usual, don't leave here with questions unanswered. If that's rung a bell for you, fill out a Care and Connect card, chat with someone after the service, dig deeper if it's pushing buttons for you. But how about we pray as we finish up? Father, we do thank you for the challenge and the comfort of your word, that by your spirit, like a scalpel in the hands of a surgeon, you cut us where necessary. And we pray that you would continue to reveal our weakness, be they weaknesses in our pride or arrogance or our so-called hidden sins which aren't hidden at all, any area of our life where we are trusting in ourselves or failing to live in full obedience to you. Father, by your spirit, might you expose us might you forgive us, might you transform us, that through facing these weaknesses we might find and trust and delight and boast in your strength and your greatness to us in Christ Jesus. For his glory we pray. Amen.